Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This episode, we're going to be finishing up our Eastern Siberia, moving on to Western Siberia in the next one. We'll continue about the administration of how did the Russian colonial administration in the early 17th century actually handled dealing with all these tribes and with the Ostiaks and the Vogels and everything. And yeah, the Protestant Khabarovsks, by the way, to those who listen to my political episode, they are uh, still going. The policy of uh, divide and rule of these tribes that happened there seemed to be really successful. The Ostiaks of the Berezov willingly aided the Russians in subduing the Konda Vogels and the Kazim Ostaks helped the Berezov Voyevodas collect furs from the Samoyeds of the same district. Basically, tribe against tribe, you know, as per usual. Among the most active native participants in Muscovy's subjugation of Western Siberia were the Ostiaks of the Koda Principality. No doubt fearful of losing their status among their people and of feeling the brunt of a, well, hard military action if they resisted Koda's rulers, were eager from almost the beginning to support Russian campaigns against their neighbors. In fact, our source Bakhrushkin directly links the continuation of the privilege of ruling over their own people with relatively little interference to the assistance Koda princes provided in bringing the regions of the lower Ob under Russian control. The freedom permitted them by the Russians was perhaps best demonstrated by their right to continue collecting Isayak in their own domain for their own use up until 1628. In addition, the princely line of succession, with authority over the Koda Ostiak people, was allowed to remain intact until its destruction in 1643, when Russians no longer had any use for its military services. Indeed, Koda's martial skill had proven to be a noticeable threat some 35-40 years earlier. The Koda Ostiaks took part in numerous campaigns with the Russians. Their knowledge of the local area combined with their familiarity with and, well, adaptability to geographic conditions, which were unfamiliar to the Russians back then, 
made their services invaluable. Some campaigns were against traditional enemies like the Kondavongols and the Samoyeds, you know, all the tribes we discussed in the previous episodes. Others had the aim of subduing other Ostiaks or peoples with whom they previously had a little or no contact at all, such as the Tungus living along the Yenisei River, by the way, this uh, happened around 1680, 1690, or the Evenks of the lower Tungutsk River, which is already central Siberia in the 1630s. The practice of pitting native against native produced predictable results, in that traditional rivalries were intensified and new animosities created where they otherwise might have, well, not been there, might have never existed. More damaging, from the point of view of Koda's leaders, Cooperation with the Russians created a rift between them and their so-called commoner tribesmen. Having been compelled to undertake all types of government service, the average Ostiak's hatred of his own rulers grew to the point where some would have preferred direct Russian rule and others rose in open revolt. In contrast to Vogel society, in which it is difficult to determine if the Russians had any substantial effect on its reordering in the early 17th century, you know, you can make a very strong case for extremely hard, strong influence on the Kodostiaks based on the previous passages there, previous statements. However, you should think about that any long-term changes brought in by the Russians could have as well been indirect and most likely unintentional arising as a result of the co-opting and hiring and acquiring Koda's so-called best men. After all, as with the other peoples of Siberia, Moscow would have had a vested interest in preserving traditional social structures in order to ensure the most efficient possible Isaiah collection, which is what they were there to do after all. As soon as the natives became more or less reconciled to Russian domination, the Russian administration sought to establish peace and order among them. Especially important was the support of wealthy or influential natives. In efforts to gain their backing, captured members of the native so-called nobility were treated with, quote, consideration and sometimes released in the hope that they would bring their relatives and supporters to the Russian side. And this is from uh, Bakhrushkin. However, um... Common historians have tried to see in these and similar events, and this is not just Bakhrushkin, but others too, uh, well, they, they have tried to see some class struggle here, and I think it's not exactly that. It is, well, however, quite widely accepted that, you know, some Siberian peoples, even before the arrival of the Russians, were discarding traditional modes of organization and undergoing a process of uh, so-called feudalization which happened alongside some greater degrees of social stratification. However, uh, some historians have expressed opinions to the contrary regarding the growth of feudalism. Stepanov, another one of uh, my sources, wrote that folklore materials, the chronicles and charters, did not provide the slightest information on the emergence of feudalism among the Ostiaks and Vogels prior to the 17th century. And that comes from the Journal of Sovietskaya Ethnographia, or Soviet Ethnography. A case in point, by the way, for this transfer to the Russian side was one Kuchum's nephew, Mahmetkul. Kuchum was one of the leaders of those tribes. Subsequent to being captured and sent to Moscow by Yermak, if you remember that guy, he was a hero in the previous episodes of these series, he was given a Russian military commission, 
and he served as a voyevoda in the Swedish War of 1590 and in an expedition to the Crimea in 1598. A number of other high-ranking members of the Khanate of Sibir were granted estates in Russia. Other native chiefs, who voluntarily joined the Russians, performed military duties for them, as did the Koda princes, and thus ensured that their fellow tribesmen, as usual, worked and collected and passed on the tribute to all the glorious Russian officials. And, you know, they were themselves often released from this payment of Isayak. Even the descendants of chiefs who initially had been hostile to the Russians were granted these prerequisites and allowed to retain their rank and authority over their people. In this manner, many native chiefs and uh, these so-called best men were, in a way, transformed into Russian officials who often attended the voyevodas and were rewarded for their service by gifts and, well, like I said, previously mentioned, exemption from the Isayak. The Russians also appealed to the natives' psychology. One of the first duties of newly appointed voyevoda was the invitation of local chiefs and so-called best men to the Ostrog for a feast in their honor. They were usually received with all the pomp afforded to any non-native dignitary, then given the opportunity to gorge themselves and indulge in strong Russian vodka. Typically, the voyevoda regaled them with a speech emphasizing the power and benevolence of government, enumerating the injustices from which all the natives suffered, and promising in the future, sometime, you know, there, but not now, sometime over there, new favors and the elimination of uh, bad practices. For example, in spite of all these inducements to encourage cooperation with the threat of harsher measures implicit in these Russian overtures, Many native leaders stubbornly resisted Russian encroachment. Under such circumstances, the Russian will was forced, often through deceit, and always without mercy. For example, after Kuchum left Sibir, the local Tatars recognized the prince Sidiak as his successor. According to the Siberian Chronicle, he and other Tatar notables were invited to the Ostrog at Toboysk for a feast, during which the voyevoda Chubukhov urged them to prove their goodwill by drinking to the health of the Tsar. Unused to these strong drinks, but determined not to offend, Sedyak and his companions each took a glass of vodka which nearly choked them. The Russians interpreted this inability to swallow the liquor as a divine omen, indicating evil intentions towards the Tsar, and seized Sedyak and massacred all of his escorts. Which is kinda crazy. Another Another thing, such as instructions to the first voyevoda of Pelium in 1592, clearly recommended luring the local chief, Ablakrim, with his son, nephews, grandsons, and some of his best men to the Ostrog, so that they too could be completely murdered. And a gramata from Tsar Vasily Ivanovich Slushki to the voyevoda of Berezovo, Prince Pyotr Cherkaski, also contains extremely explicit instructions concerning who among the natives should be executed and how, as a deterrent to other natives dissatisfied with the Russian rule. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online.
This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Once the Russians had defeated any given group of natives, whether with persuasive or extremely violent measures, the natives were required to swear a solemn oath of loyalty to the Tsar and guarantee faithful fulfillment of their duties. The Russians allowed them to give the oath using traditional rites with native assurances that these rites made the pledge binding under penalty of invoking some horrible, horrible supernatural fate. The Russians quickly learned how to verify if the oath was or straight. Knowing little of native customs, at first they were easily duped into believing that whatever ceremony was performed would be regarded by the natives as unbreakable. Moreover, the two sides often interpreted an oath's meaning very differently. In Moscow's opinion, it represented, quote, an allegiance sworn by a non-Christian people to their Muscovite sovereign, end quote. While for many natives it was confirmation of a peace treaty with the new people, about whom the natives knew little and on whom they projected the structure of their own tribal and decentralized society. These perceptions also suggest that many natives saw the Russians as equals, potential partners in political, commercial or military undertakings. That such native interpretations ultimately proved to be inaccurate, to say the least, doesn't mean that all of Siberia's aboriginals were always naive in their dealings with the Russians. Indeed, the apparent irregularity with which false oaths were given indicates that many native peoples recognized that until such time as the Russians overcame their ignorance of tribal customs, such oaths could serve to keep the conquerors happy with native behavior and prevent further interference in native affairs. In addition to placating the Russians, false oaths also served to obviate both any restrictions a true oath would place on the tribe's freedom of action, and the risk of losing face with respect to their own traditions if a pledge was broken. A more effective method of obtaining submission, and one which gained widespread practice, was taking of hostages, as usual. Back then, you know, tracking of hostages and trading with them around, that's, um, that's something that medieval people liked to do a lot. Occasionally, hostages were seized by force, but generally the natives selected them from among themselves with the stipulation that those whom they sent to the Russians be individuals of some importance in the tribe. Therefore, it was usually chiefs, members of their families such as sons, brothers or nephews, or so-called best men, who served as hostages. 
Sometimes the Russians refused to accept hostages they believed came from lesser families. Usually, one or two hostages were taken from every volost, that is, from every district into which an uyezd was subdivided. The period of a hostage's incarceration ranged from a month to a year, depending on how quickly his kin fell into line and how valuable a particular captive was felt to be. When this time expired, they were to be replaced with new hostages. When the representatives of their people came to pay the Isayak, the prisoners were shown to them to prove that they were still alive and well. Varying degrees of freedom were afforded to these hostages. Instructions to the voyevodas dictated that they were to be well guarded under lock and key. Those who were considered a risk for flight, or for whom a rescue attempt might be mounted, were sometimes kept in irons. On the other hand, some were permitted intermittent leaves to visit their homes. On the whole, they were to be well treated and fed and clothed at government expense. Not surprisingly, however, practice often... Uh, differed from theory wildly, and the hostages were often cheated, fed dog food for carrion flesh, and some died from beatings and starvation, as usual. Finally, the practice of holding Amanati, or how the tribal people call these hostages, to encourage obedience didn't meet with success across the board. You know, if we come and take your um, leaders, and then we torture them, and beat them up, and hold them, uh, yeah... It just might, um, might cause some trouble. In some instances, they were abandoned by their relatives, by the way. And tribespeople who choose instead to flee from the Russians. So, being in that place of a hostage isn't a, isn't a fun perspective, you know. You are being taken as a hostage by the Russians to guarantee your loyalty. And uh, then, then your tribe decides that, hey, nobody liked that guy anyways. Let's just get out of here instead while we still can and do some fake rituals while the Russians are still looking. And, and yeah, so, so far I've been looking only um, at this Russian administration in Siberia, basically on how they managed the Isaiah collection and how important that was. The gathering of these first, however, was not the sole occupation the Russians prescribed for the natives. The construction of most Ostrogs involved the use of native laborers. Although they were segregated from the Russian workers and prohibited from entering the fort, quote, lest they should learn about the number and equipment of the Russian serving men, end quote. Some natives were pressed into transport service, hauling heavy loads across portages and in winter harnessing their reindeer or dog teams to Russian requirements. This obligation could become so burdensome and distracting from the daily business of survival that some native groups petitioned to the Tsar to be released from it. The people of the Narim district, for instance, did so in 1634, and the petition was actually, surprisingly enough, satisfied. In some places, especially although not exclusively, in the southern parts of western Siberia, where some agriculture could be done, inhabited by Vogels and Tatars, the local population was put to work as early as 1601, clearing pasture land and raising crops for the Russians. Thus it was some natives actually performed agricultural rather than traditional Isayak. In general, the government's attitude towards the natives was one of paternalism, regarding them as special wards of the state who needed supervision and protection. In accordance with this way of thinking, it was deemed necessary to keep Russian arms from reaching the locals. The importation of Russian vices, particularly wine and tobacco, was strictly prohibited because their consumption might affect native capability to deliver the Sayak. 
nor were Russian merchants allowed to sell to the natives axes or knives or any other item that could be turned into a weapon. Latter prohibition especially caused the natives to give vent to their frustrations and petitions. Deciding to keep them as happy as possible with the Russian rule, the government attentively considered each petition and gave prompt and quite often even favorable replies. When responses were not favorable, the regulations could usually be circumvented, since there were always profit-seeking, um, <clears throat> smuggling, Russian merchants willing to, you know, take another look and just put that axe over there on the on the rock, and you put that fur over there on that rock, and, and then we just uh, each find that thing, and I'm not selling anything, obviously. The responsibility for ensuring that all of the government's instructions were carried out in Siberia fell squarely on the voyevodas, the war leaders that I mentioned previously. The scope of their authority was considerable, in that they wielded military, police, civil, judicial, and limited diplomatic powers. In general, Moscow appointed members of the nobility to these posts. I'm pretty sure the nobility wasn't exactly happy to leave Moscow and later St. Petersburg to go into the middle of nowhere and deal with natives and live over there. But it could get some benefits to them. But yeah, Moscow appointed these members of nobility as long as they had prior experience in military and civilian affairs, and each candidate's background was carefully checked in order to prevent corruption. Before departing Moscow for Siberia, the voyevodas received clear instructions concerning their responsibilities and were warned of the consequences if they failed to meet their expectations. A pro tip, it, it's usually not the... Uh, very good thing that could happen to them. As a check on their activity, they were ordered to maintain regular communication with the capital, and the term of office was limited to two years as an additional measure to guard against graft and corruption. Moreover, in some key centers, two voyevodas were appointed, so that they could monitor each other. That's uh, a particular tradition that continued even in the Soviet era with the so-called Troikas, if, you, if you've listened to my earlier episodes. The Dyaki, these two voyevodas, in all cases were to participate in all major decisions affecting an area, acting as the sovereign's eyes and ears, and reporting any wrongdoing on the part of the voyevodas. The realities of life so distant from Moscow, however, greatly tempered the force of many regulations. With virtually unlimited power in the area in which he served, a voyevoda could be as ruthless as he wished in extracting Isaac from the local population. On their own initiative, some of them raised the quota of furs commonly by one or two sables per native, although in the Pelium and Narim voyevodas more than doubled the quota in their Uyazd in 1624. Some of the extra pelts were passed on to the government treasury, but uh, quite obviously many found their way into the pockets of the voyevodas and their subordinates. Any investigation normally elicited the response to the furs in their position had been received as... <coughs> Gifts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Further aggravating the situation, many of the Russian serving men who went to the native settlements to collect the tribute often took more than just furs. They were just as likely to take native foodstocks and animals, destroy hunting and fishing equipment, burning settlements down with no apparent advantage to themselves, and, well, rape. Oh, all the rape. The natives, of course, had recourse to petitioning the Tsar if they could find scribes willing to write such documents, and many complaints of abuse by the voyevodas and their men actually were investigated. 
However, the distances involved in communication with Moscow meant that the responses often came too late to repair any damage done by the abuses of Russian officials. Moreover, since one of Avodivod's duties was to hear all petitions and complaints, both native and Russian, there was ample opportunity to sidetrack any complaints against him personally. For those complaints that somehow did reach the Tsar's ear, the time required for orders concerning an instigation to reach back to Siberian centers from Moscow provided corrupt officials with plenty of time to fix evidence and witnesses in their favor. Therefore, quote, correction of the evils was left in the hands of the local administrators who, more or less, shielded each other in these matters, end quote. Unless the natives could win the sympathy of other officials or make the trip to Moscow to present the petition in person, some grievances might never be addressed. So, if someone just comes down and robs you blind, then you have to bribe someone else to get a petition. And that even isn't guaranteed to do, well, literally anything to make your life even better. When petitions failed to provide the relief the natives wanted, they resorted to refusal to deliver the Isayak, which usually brought even further reprisals and abuses. They also tried flight to regions where Russians might not find them, open-armed opposition, or, in extreme cases, mass suicide. An account from 1627 reports that the Ostyaks of Sugurt jumped from their boats and drowned themselves rather than suffer under Russian rule which is also a sad solution. In general, the disorganization and the lack of political unity in Siberia and the myriad petty jealousies and the hatreds that existed between the tribes operated against the common action. However, some fairly well-organized, coherent and serious attempts were mounted in 1604, 1609 and 1612. The most serious was that of 1609, led by Anna of Koda, a baptized Ostyak. It followed a revolt of the previous year, which was crushed and had many of its leaders hanged, including almost all the peoples of western Siberia. The conspirators planned to seize all the important towns and Ostrogs and kill all the Russians in the territory, thereby overthrowing Russian rule. The plan was accidentally discovered when a messenger from one tribe to another was intercepted by the Russians enabling the Voyevodas to deal with the crisis. It is interesting to note that there was a convert to Christianity who led this revolt. Either her adoption of the new faith was merely superficial, or, if she had taken it to heart, her identification with her own people was obviously stronger than any sense of being Russian she might have obtained from becoming Christian. In any case, the scarcity of information regarding Anna and the rebellion makes it impossible to arrive at a definite conclusion concerning this last point, but um, you can just imagine out of all the authority the Voyevodas had and with this open rebellion that it was probably pretty bad and um, quite, quite horrific for the native peoples. The 1612 uprising was prompted by the time of troubles. The Siberian natives had become aware that there was no Tsar in Moscow and that they knew the garrisons in the colony were undermanned. Accordingly, the Tatars, Ostyaks, and Vogels formed an alliance with the intentions of capturing Pelem, invading Perm, and re-establishing an independent Siberian Khanate, as had existed under Kuchum. According to Landzev, another historian of my sources from Istorichiskiya uh, Zepisi, 
The native army began an advance on Pelium, but further data on the rebellion is lacking. It undoubtedly met with failure and was put down with the usual severity. The suppression of these revolts did not put an end to the attempts at combined resistance, but after 1612, there were none of the significance affecting Western Siberia until 1662. Thus, the native population had little choice but to reconcile itself to Russian rule. By the late 1620s, Russian dominion had extended across almost all of Western Siberia, leaving fewer places of escape where the natives could avoid detection. While the policies of the central government were in many respects progressive for the time, and every attempt was made to see that indigenous people were treated fairly and with respect, the realities were very different. These policies stayed only on the papers that they were written on. The overriding Russian concern was for the collection of Isayak, and despite the assertion by some writers that the tribute did not seem to have been excessively burdensome, it was in fact a heavy burden. The sable and other fur-bearing animals desired by the Russians did not form an integral part of the native economies, and hunting them took valuable time and manpower away from tasks necessary to survival. With respect to the administration of the territory, the fairly frequent shifting of responsibility for Siberia from department to department could have had only a detrimental effect on the development of the efficient management of the colony. Had one agency been charged with overseeing Siberia from outset, Moscow may have had greater success curbing the corruption and abuse that plagued both the Syak collection and Russian native relations. However, this is basically mere speculation, and in any event, many voyevodas felt they could act contrary to any authority with complete impunity. And again, finally, distance from Moscow and the temptation of a lucrative fur trade encouraged the greed of countless profit-seeking government officials, making administrative corruption and abuse of the natives massively widespread. The perpetuation of these problems may perhaps be summed up by the sentiment common among the Russians in Siberia, which is uh, cited in James R. Gibson, uh, Russia on the Pacific, The Role of Amor, from uh, 1968. God is high above, and the Tsar is far away. And this concludes our exploration of Western Siberia, and now we're ready to move into the Eastern Siberia, which is extremely closely tied to both Russian Manchurian ambitions, which will lead to the War of 1904 and the revolutions, I'm gonna tie it together a bit. And secondly, well, these series are called Russian Alaska, so it's time we move on to that one as well. Do svidaniya, tovarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.